0: Hello guys, for those of you that are new listeners to this podcast, I just want to take the opportunity to say welcome, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Today's guest, Jens Berggren, works as a sustainability expert at the Farmers Association here in Sweden. The topic of conversations today is the future of farming, and we talked about sustainable agriculture, incentives, and what is needed from conventional farming to become sustainable? It is truly a source of inspiration to hear Jan speak about sustainability in general, but also about his important work at LRF. So, without further ado, I give you our next episode. Hello, everyone, and welcome to yet another episode of the Decade podcast. The exciting theme for today's episode is the future of farming. And I'm very excited to tell that we have a very interesting guest with us here today. Welcome Jens Berggren. How are you today?
1: Thank you. I'm, I'm very fine.
0: Amazing. Where are you calling in from today?
1: Uh, the Green Valley of Stockholm, Grön Dal. Uh, so it's it's a green theme also in my location, but that's <laughs> where, where I live.
0: Amazing, amazing. But today I imagine that it's quite white outside, right?
1: It is, and quite cold as well, but uh, we've been longing for this.
0: Mm, perfect, perfect. I'm uh, very excited to have you on here today, but um, why don't we start off with describing a bit who are you in 2020 and what are you doing?
1: Well, I'm a sustainability expert at LRF, the Swedish Farmers Association, and the Swedish Farmers Association is a big organization in Sweden. It's it's actually quite odd because usually in other parts of the world, farmers associations are only farmers. But in Sweden, we have also the foresters. So we're about 140,000 members in Sweden uh, working in the green sectors. Uh, So we have people working with the primary production but we also have a lot of the cooperative food industry as well and uh, also forestry industry so it's a big organization and slightly different to a similar organization in other parts of the world where they usually separate the different parts out we are a big umbrella uh, organization in that sense we have almost everyone or at least <laughs> members from every part of society so we have the livestock farmers, and we have the organic farmers, we have sort of the, the, the bigger forest industries and the small family-owned farms and small family-owned forests. So that's basically who we are. And, and my role in LRF is to actually work on helping all our members to improve their environmental work, so to say, increase their sustainability. And I, and I, I probably said there because environmental is one part of sustainability as you of course know so sustainability has environmental social and economic parts and that is what we are working to increase and and, and improve sort of for a whole and I think and we might sort of come to this later in this discussion but actually that a lot of our future well-being in Sweden, in Europe, and on this planet, actually rests upon the shoulders of the green sectors and what we can do. So I am very optimistic. Uh, The future, especially in a corona year like this, might not look very, uh, it looks slightly bleak, but I do believe that sort of what we can do, the solutions that we can provide from the green sectors is something that we all should be be very looking forward to with a lot of anticipation and hope
0: cool and can you explain a bit more there what what is it that actually you do as a sustainability expert do, do you have a connection with the farmers or add a bit more about your your day-to-day work
1: oh well uh, right now i have very few connections other <laughs> digital like this unfortunately mm. no uh, my i started it's almost one and a half years ago in LF, and the reason i think uh, was that they had agreed in the big meeting that they have every year, uh, Riksverbund Stemma, which is sort of where everybody gathers together and talk about the nutrients. there they decided that they should formulate uh, a set of sustainability goals. And I got hired related to that. So my first job was to come up with what should the goals for sustainability within the entire green sectors be, so it would fit both the forest parts and the uh, farming parts and sort of also the industrial parts of this. So that was my first job, Try to formulate this. And of course, we started looking at the uh, Millennium Development Goals, the uh, Sustainable Development Goals, and all the different parts of science to find out what is the material value in this? What is the important part that we can contribute with and what do we need? So we actually came up with 38, I think it is, different goals that we have. And they are... It's formulated in a way that we say, this is what we want to do. And this is the help that we would need from society to be successful in our ambitions. So so we it took quite a while to, to organize that. And the decision on those sustainability goals was taken last year, almost a year ago, actually, in, in the 24th of of. Uh, of January, uh, and then we had a plan to actually go out with this, but then came Corona, and also uh, the organization as a whole realized that this is quite the big task, and that everything that we said that we wanted to do, we were not really organized perfectly to be able to to, to do this in the best way. so we had a, quite a lot of searching internally as well, and come out with new plans on how we should move forward, and also restructuring the, the both the organization and the annual planning so that we can deliver on this. So I'm slightly an outsider in this, but one thing that I'm in a sense both proud of and a bit, <laughs> if I if I may frustrated at times, is that the seriousness that this is taking within the organisation. I mean, they don't say something and and, and sort of just a loose promise, yeah, we will fix this, but this is taken so seriously, which means that it also takes a lot of time, because there's a lot of discussions going through this. What do we mean in serious, and how can we prove this, and what should we actually be doing and all of that? And and I think that's a huge strength, to a large extent, of the farming community in Sweden, that they are so really serious and really, really concerned about sustainability. Because one of the things that we have to keep in mind is that the people who I'm talking about here that the foresters and the farmers that we have they live in with and of ecosystems biodiversity sort of nature in their everyday life so they are deeply concerned where they are sort of experiencing the, the, the changes that are coming now and they're also living outside there in the real reality exposed to weather and climate every day so they are the first ones sort of getting the feel for what the future might have and they are getting really worried and then sort of how can we and also as a society as a whole try to do this much better, because I think that's one of the key issues. Sometimes in the discussion, it seems like people are trying to sort of push the blame around and say that, well, you should do more or you, your part of climate change is this many percent or something like that. And then, and that could be a valuable exercise. But I think it's far more important that we start looking forward, that we start looking towards what is the future that we want and how can we, for example, within forestry and farming, what can we do to be sort of build sustainable societies what is our role in the future sustainable society rather than trying to perfect ourselves and saying that this is what we are responsible for we should fix our thing because i think then we won't be able to move forward in the way that we really need to do in order to build sustainable societies for the future and to build a better decade
2: Mm,
0: amazing sounds really great and what what do you describe that the
2: vision is for LRF in connection to sustainable agriculture? In a bit of a nutshell, I guess, uh, since it seems that you have many different directions and multiple goals, which is great. But what what would you say is the the nutshell version of your vision for the future?
1: Oh, I, I think it's 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 big, and it's it shouldn't really be my vision, but LRF. But I think one of the key issues here that we need to think about is. That, it might sound slightly negative, but one of the things that we know is that sort of the, the the fossil era has to end. I mean that that's for sure. And then the question is, what is the, the vision that we currently have? I think we might come up to something even better in the future. But right now, we see it as urgent and hugely important to sort of help society, the global society, to as quickly as possible. Uh, Sort of wean it off from the sort of fossil abuse that we've been having for the last, let's say, 200 years or so. So, that, I think that is. And then, of course, we move into something that we usually, and it's kind of technical, this maybe, but we call it circular bioeconomy. And the thing is, with bioeconomy, we mean the things that can be produced by photosynthesis. Because photosynthesis, it occurred some 470 million years ago, and it's a fantastic thing. What it does is it uses light of the sun, the only thing that we have sort of in, in an abundance, so to say, on our planet, this sort of spaceship Earth floating around in space. We get energy from the sun. And that is being taken by the plants and used in the sort of the chloroplasts within the, the plant leaves to convert carbon dioxide in the air to, well, hydrocarbons sugars and other things that then build up the plants and this is something that we can use and what we do in the green sectors is try to in the best way make this as efficient and possible as uh, as possible actually and when we do that we can of course uh, convert that into product for society that society can use for different purposes and that we can use to fulfill societal needs and Doing that in such a way that we don't need to sort of fulfill the needs without using finite resources like uh, fossil fuels or metal or other things that we dig out of the crust of the earth. So I think our vision is that we want to contribute to as much as possible to the shift towards this circular bioeconomy because then what will happen is that when society uses our products, They can be first maybe as timber to build a house, and then when it has been a house for a long time, it might be able to convert that timber, take it down, and maybe grind it down to make paper in the paper mill, and then that paper could be reused, and maybe then it could become, well, it could have been furniture, whatever. We use it in several different cascades in many ways, and we could move it back and forth. At the end of this, it might be so that we could burn the remnants of that biomaterial, and then... Uh, we could capture the carbon that was storing that in some cam- carbon capture and storage process and sort of put it very far down in the ground somewhere. And we can also take the ashes that contain a lot of the minerals, the the, the nutrients that and, that the plants need and bring that back to society. And then we would have this loop. And I think throughout this process in many different parts, we could take things from other parts of society, if it's clean enough, so to say, and use it in our production and upgrade those materials or, or potential foodstuffs into food or clothes or buildings or something else, and we could have this circular system. I know I'm kind of describing something that to some people might sound, sound like the old farming, the, the things that have happened before in the sterilisation and before we started using fossil fuels, and in some ways it is. But I think the most important part here is we need to use all the knowledge, all the technology, all the computing and, and um, photoelectric effects that Einstein got <laughs> a Nobel Prize for, and stuff like that, that we use to transfer data across the world and increase the precision. We have to use all, every type of modern technology to not go back to a sort of the, the, the farming society of the past, but actually building a new sustainable farming society using the knowledge that we have, and use, using the science and all of those things to build a better world, but based on the sustainable use of what the sun does to deliver energy to us on our on this planet do i make myself do i make any sense at all
2: <laughs> absolutely absolutely I have, I have a few points i want to touch on here that yeah. like there's almost a quote in there that we ought to be enablers of photosynthesis that's kind of a good vision i think to be that and then when looking on uh, like circular bioeconomy i'm really curious because that's a goal and it's something that we must as a humanity reach at some point and the sooner the better of course And we're going to talk about sustainable agriculture from different perspectives in this talk. But just from a circularity standpoint and the bioeconomy, where would you say that we are today as of in Sweden? How far along are we towards this grand goal?
1: Oh, that's a very tricky question. Uh... I know. (laughs) You know, I, I would say globally, we're very far from it. And that's sad because and if you look at the, the, the 10 biggest companies in our world, seven of them are in the fossil industry. Uh, Two of them are in the vehicle transport, basically also fossil. And the the biggest company is Walmart. They they sell a lot of things, but also a lot of things made of plastic, which is usually fossil. So, I mean, we are not in a good place in the world. If you look at Sweden, I would say, and I I sincerely mean this, we are in a far better place than most others when it comes to this. We have, have, I mean, if you look at the primary energy use in Sweden, it's, I think, some almost 40% comes from bioenergy which is far more than I think most of the countries in the world. And we also have a lot of hydropower, which also, in a sense, is using the sun because this is the sun that heats up the the water that sort of creates the clouds, rains down, and we have hydropower, so we take use of that. Uh, So we are far ahead of many other countries. Important thing here is that being far ahead is a good thing because we might be able to show the way forward, but also so that it's also sad in the sense that we are not that great. I wouldn't, I'm i not able to say when we would reach this and if we ever will reach this global goal of only using what photosynthesis can give us. I hope it will happen in my lifetime. Uh, then I hope that I will live <laughs> quite a bit longer, but I, I'm I'm not certain it will. I, I I sincerely hope it will happen for 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 my kids. I, I I that's one of the sort of things that keep me awake at night, and also one of the big dreams I have that we will within a generation be able to move to a sustainable place again. Uh, that, that's a deep 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 hole and belief that I have, and something that I need to to keep going. So so <laughs> I'll leave it at that.
2: Yeah. Yeah, definitely share that with you. And I kind of was getting at that the the complexity of the things that we're talking about. But let's let's stay for a bit in this type of sustainable agriculture and talk about the economics of it. Because um, um, I'm interested in how the system works from an economic standpoint, from from farmers. And perhaps we can take the frame of a farmer within EU for the time being. And how does it work? Uh, like, do consumers pray? The true price of the goods or is the subsidiaries needed and how does that system works and what are the deficiencies of it
1: well that's a huge and we don't have the time and <laughs> we don't have the, the interest of the listeners to go through it all and i wouldn't be able to tell you either i'm not an expert in this field but i can i can try to give you an image i mean first of all if you look at farming if we take for example a, a grain farmer or, or, or somebody producing tomatoes or something like that. The thing is that mostly it's so, especially if it's grain, you, you can, in Sweden, uh, you get one harvest a year. In some cases, it seems like after climate change to make it possible to maybe get two harvests on certain crops, but we'll leave that for the time being. What you do is you start maybe this time of the year to plan the future harvest, and then you start investing in because you have to have the machinery, you have to have the land, you have to all of those things. And then you start planting you might already have planted if you 're going with the autumn sown crop, and then you make that grow as good as you can, and then comes spring and snow melt and all of this and the things start to come up and you you try to protect your plants the best you can and see that they have the best opportunities so that they can sort of uh, well, produce as much as you can. You really hope for good weather. And one of the dangers, if you just take this part when it comes to climate change, is it's one thing people have in the past said, that well, climate change would benefit uh, producers in Sweden. And maybe it will, maybe some years, because it will make the, the growing season a bit longer. We will have slightly warmer weather and things would start earlier. The problem there is it also introduces a lot of uncertainty, because what we've seen now, like you heard, the, the, I think it was the other week, when they had minus... 30 or something degrees in a huge snowstorm in Spain. And we had warm weather here. Now, all of a sudden, we have minus 10 outside and lots of snow. That will also happen during the spring. And one of the things that farmers are very, very scared about, especially if they're fruit farmers, is sort of late frosts, because that could kill all the flowers and then you don't have any production at all. And late frosts, when the plants have started to sort of thinking that, wow, there's sunlight, I'll start to grow, they do sort of... Break their winter sleep and start rebuilding the plant internally so they can sort of start growing. And then they are very, very sensible to frost and things like that because they have moved out of their winter sleep in a sense. Uh, so that was one thing that also will be. But then comes summer and hopefully things are well and there's rain and sufficient amounts and all that. And then you start cutting down and harvesting in the spring. And then economically, you sell what you have bought or uh, what you have produced. The thing is that the first loads of uh, grain that you sell, that goes to paying for, that goes to the bank because you have to pay for the loans that you have on your land. And then you have to pay for the, the diesel or the fuel that you use in your tractors. And then you have to pay for the fertilizer, and all those things. So actually financially, usually the last couple of holes of grain that you, so you bring into the to the mill, that's where you get in a sense all the year's salary from them. So one of the things that I've heard sometimes people saying that, well, if the farmers would do X, Y, or Z, it would only affect 10% of their harvest uh, or 5% of the harvest. And the important thing then to remember is that those 5%, that could be the entire profit, so to say, for an entire year's work. So losing 5% of a harvest is an enormous thing. I mean, you and I, we wouldn't be happy if they just reduced our salary by 5%, but that's not what we're talking about. This is actually losing the entire salary for an entire year and maybe also going deeper into debt if, they, if that's the problem. So that's one thing with farm that we have to keep in mind. And then, of course, if you look at the subsidies that are there, and they are very different depending on what you do and in different parts of, of farming, so to say. But on average, they are maybe between ten and twenty percent, and those ten and twenty percent are far more than that. What the average farmer actually has in return on their investments. So, in that sense, uh, subsidies are hugely important for the farmer because they couldn't survive without it. And of course, one of the reasoning behind these subsidies is that they push down prices, uh, and they do. I one of the things that I find slightly difficult with this is, of course, that. When you have low prices for something, you don't really value it as much. And I think one of the problems that we have in Sweden and other parts of the rich world, especially when it comes to food waste, is that we don't appreciate the food, the work that has gone into producing this. Uh, So if you look globally, up to some 30 percent of the food that's produced is being wasted. But in poorer countries, it's often wasted in the fields or in the transport or in the storage capacity because you don't have, for example, the plant protections that you can save the crops from being eaten by locusts or rats or or insects of some kind so you can't protect it there uh, or you don't have the cold storage so you can't protect it from the, the fungi or the bacteria that would uh, attack it in other forms but when it comes to the household you treat it very very carefully because in places like Bangladesh 80% of a household income goes to food so this is hugely important and you treat it very very carefully in our richer parts of the world we have many situations where you get you know the kind of buy three, get a get a third if you buy two, so to say. So you have a third one free and we we buy it and we don't really care. And if it's, 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 you scrape it off the plate if you didn't really like it, you throw it away and we lose a lot of the food within the household. So it's uh, almost a third in sort of both rich and poor countries, but for different means. And I think one of the problems, especially then in richer countries, is that since it's so cheap for so many people, we don't really appreciate it. So I actually do think that low prices for food is more of a problem than, than than a good thing. But the question is that we have the system and this system has been built up and we are used to working with it. So how should we change it in one way or the other? And we cannot just sort of throw it out because then it would lead to several very, very strange and, and, and unforeseen uh, consequences. So we really need to, to manage this in a good way, and if, well, I'm not a politician, so I, maybe I shouldn't sort of, and I don't know enough about this, but this is something that we have to be very, very careful about, so we so we don't change things so we make things worse, but actually do this in a very, very conscious way. And I think what what is going on right now and what has sort of come up as a suggestion for the new CAP, the Common Agricultural Policy and the support systems in there, is probably a quite balanced thing because there's been a huge amount of work going into this and listening to different aspects of how it could be done in, in, in the most sort of proper way and how you can sort of tweak this and it's, it's quite tricky I do believe that from from some Swedish farmers we think that some of the things that it has been done is Quite strange, and on the other hand, we have farmers in other parts of the of, of, of Europe to think that the things that have been done for the benefit of Swedish farmers is very strange. So this is a very much a negotiated uh, and and quite, a quite heavily uh, intricate uh, process. So in that sense, I have great faith in it that it has led to something that is at least quite good.
2: Yeah, I'm not absolutely not an expert in this as well, but I'm just. Uh curious to understand the system more because there are so many actors and when you pluck on one actor you have to be aware of how the whole system interacts and I think what I'm curious to like develop is really how uh, to make the decisions for the consumer the incentives line up in such a way that they make the best choices for the environment as possible and of course we need to be very that the economic situation is sustainable for the farmers in the first hand so that they can actually produce the food but then if the prices are pushed down, it seems like, because usually, I guess you can kind of uh, develop this further, but that sometimes the the ecological or organic foods are not producing as big yields as uh, through conventional farming. But conventional farming is not sustainable per se in the long term. So we have all those issues that the prices for a um, something that is not organic can sometimes be lower than the organic ones. And that creates incentives in the wrong way in the store for a consumer, which is economically minded for themselves. So kind of that I'm curious to how could we build a system that lines up these rationales so that the incentives for each part of the chain is sustainable in that sense. And I realized that we can't go in today and talk about how to do that in, in a large context, but it's just a really interesting topic to see where we go. And, uh, we recently had a conversation with Owen Gaffney about what you mentioned there, the stability of things. He talked about the Holocene as uh, kind of the the driver for farming and the agriculture, and that's really building up our entire society because of uh, the predictability of systems. And that's, I think, a large risk moving forward that uh, if we have frost in Spain and uh, huge uh, warm weathers in, in Sweden when it's not supposed to be from a predictability standpoint. And um, in that conversation, we also talked about, the, he mentioned that our agricultural system is needed to transform from a carbon source into a carbon sink. And this is kind of where we get into regenerative farming. So could you perhaps explain what one definition of what's regenerative farming is and how it could be a carbon sink
1: absolutely let me just comment on what you just said because i think that's hugely important the thing is that we when we move into a store and we have to make a choice between our pennies and the planet we end up in problems i mean absolutely we have to align this and this is what sort of economists have been struggling with all along this that we have so-called externalities that something is being used by someone but uh gets the benefit from its use, but the damages of that use sort of affects everybody else. Uh, And, you know, there aren't any externalities. They do affect somebody else. And that's the thing. And that's a hugely complicated uh, situation that we can't really continue like this. And especially, as you say, when we have certain food that is being produced in a better way, being more expensive. So it actually hurts you as an individual to use that. Uh, rather than benefit you. So we have sort of reversed the entire uh, sort of economic rationale ar- around us. And I think we'd Need, really really need to move into that and try to fix that and i would say when it comes for example organic i'm so happy that we have organic because the organic production has been able to give the rest of conventional so to say which it's also a very broad word because everybody <laughs> produces the food that they produce in their own way so these are just big labels but even so they've been able to come up with ideas that can then be used and the same thing with regenerative there's a lot of things there that others can sort of try to look at and see how would that fit, fit on my farm? How could I use that? But it's also, uh, this is a joke I just read yesterday. Somebody said, uh, what do you call traditional medicine that works? Medicine. Because what do you call sort of, organic production that has been scientifically proven in the sort of traditional way, well then it would be conventional. So I think this is something that is so important that we have all these people who are willing to test out new ideas before they have been sort of, but also that the rest of the so-called conventional farming are able to take those ideas when they have been scientifically proven that there's sort of a methodology behind them and introduce them into their work. So I think this is something that we absolutely in the future that we are moving towards which would be much more more uncertain that it has been in the past because as you rightly said, the Holocene for some strange reason 10 to twelve thousand years ago climate just stabilized. And then it's when all sort of the human development that we've been seeing from sort of the the, 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 the first agriculturists to the sort of the great civilizations of the past and to what, where we are today have happened under that part. Before that, there were sort of times in the history we know humans or human-like creatures existed then, but they were almost sort of extinct in several instances when climate started to sort of play around with the possibilities of living on this planet. And then, of course, during this, maybe in 12,000 to 10,000 years, it has been stable. And we have, we have taken that for granted. We're now realizing that we're probably moving ourselves out of that sphere and where we're heading. Well, we need to be able to try out several different new ideas to see what could work in the future that we're heading towards. And not just be looking backwards, but actually fixing our gaze towards the future and seeing what might happen there on the horizon and how should we adapt to the changes that will inevitably come. So regenerative farming. I think it's a quite broad concept and I'm not the right person to try to define it actually uh, because I've been seeing very many different definitions. One of the parts that has, has been part of this regenerative is that you want to, it's in my take, it has a lot to do with soil health. That soil, what we have underneath our feet is actually a living set of organisms. There's so many different microorganisms in there. There are worms, there are spiders fungi all different kinds and one of the problems is we're losing soil we're losing soil a lot so this sort of combination of, of living in dead organic material with sort of minerals from 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 grinded rocks uh that living thing that makes the the use of us making use of photosynthesis possible uh we have to make sure that that functions well and and i i would probably think that many people working with virginity farming have this idea that it has to do with maintaining soil health so that we keep the soil in as good health as possible and then the different ways that you do that i think there are many different parts that come into that and people do things slightly differently and i think that's an excellent thing i mean we have people who have certain types of grazing where they try to emulate the big herbivores' uh, impact on soils and uh, flora by the way that they move around like big herds, where people think that that's the way that built up these deep, deep layers of Good soils in the prairies in in the Americas before sort of uh, Europeans got there, and that's then they try to emulate that. There are others that try to work with no till so that you don't disturb uh, the soil at all, they try to keep it sort of and minimize the the way that you sort of disturb what's already there. And others who who believe in sort of adding as much of Organic material into the soil so that you give enough food for the different types of well beings that exist in that soil so they are well fed and well nourished with lots of nutrients and lots of carbon so they can sort of build up that their biomass in the best way possible and sort of aerate the soil. And and I'm not an expert in any of this. (laughs) Actually, you uh, are really an expert. I know something about it. But I think that all these different ideas, I think it's so good that they've been tested and tried. And I think it's so good that if we come up with something that doesn't work, that's great, because then others don't have to try that, at least in the same situations. If we come up with things that do work, then it's excellent. Then it's possible for others to see how does this function, where I, in the, in the thing, in the way that I do things. Because I think that's also very important. To know that farming is so local in all its form we bought a cottage which is five kilometers from where my my partner grew up and and her father has been a farmer there it's just five kilometers between and i of course go to him give advice how should i do this How should I do this? and the things that he has taken for granted the things that he knows works perfectly in his farm This is not a farm that we have. We try to grow certain crops and stuff. They don't really work as well. And it's just five kilometers in between because the soils are slightly different, the weather is slightly different, things are slightly different. So the thing that we need to sort of understand how local farming is and how important it is to that you learn how this land works. I mean, people are very happy, it seems, these days to sort of read something that has a study that has been done in a certain part of the world and then think you can just export that knowledge to, for example, Sweden or the US. But every time this has to be adapted to that local production, to that local person. And also me, because I'm not my, my, my father-in-law. Uh, he, he sees things in a different way and he does things in a different way. He has good sides and probably <laughs> less good sides. And so do I. I have more of the less good sides, of course, but, but still I do my best with what I can. So I think this thing is also something that we need to take into account.
0: I really agree with you there that locality, I think that plays a pivotal role in anything that is connected to sustainability, really. What I want to know a bit more about is the development of of the sector. And I read an interview that you did, and I read that you experienced a great shift in the agriculture sector, that sustainability is seen as a great possibility, like an advantage for the sector. And this sounds really great and exciting in my ears and uh, could you please elaborate a bit on this and how you experience experiencing that shift and what is it that have been changed in the sector you think
1: oh i'm not really sure what i said in that interview mm-hmm. <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> but <clears throat> no i i think I, there's a lot of things that I, I guess have changed and i think i mean if you look at for example the the, the what the EU now has done in, in coming up with the, the European Green Deal and the Farm to Fork, the things that they mentioned in the Farm to Fork program are, are things that we in Sweden and the Swedish farmers have been working with for like, 30 or 40 years. So I would say in that sense, that's a huge recognition of that we have been on the right path and we have been leaving the way for a long, long time towards a more sustainable farming. So I think that first of all is something that most Swedish farmers really take, need to take to heart that this is actually a, a, a label on you that you have done the right thing. And they have to be very proud of that. But I think that's hugely important for most of us. I mean, just to take one example, I actually didn't know this before I started with uh, in LLF, but the antibiotics discussion—that you should not use antibiotics for growth purposes, but rather just to treat animals who are sick. The whole debate about that, the whole discussion started in one of these big meetings within LF, where there was a motion from one of the members saying that, hey, we shouldn't be doing this. And people at that time, they knew that this would probably hurt us economically, but it was the right thing to do. And there the discussion started. And then, of course, that went on to say that we need to give our politicians sort of information about this, how they should do things. And I think especially in a year that we have been experiencing this pandemic, I mean, imagine what would happen if our antibiotics don't work anymore. Now, of course, viruses don't die from antibiotics, but there are other diseases that we would be affected by. This work started by Swedish farmers knowing that this would be wrong to increase the risks for by antibiotic resistance in the world by using it for growth purposes in farming. And even though it might hurt them economically, they did the right thing. And you know, there are so many things like that that they've been doing. And I think what has happened with the shift that I am seeing, and I hope will come very soon, is what we've also been seeing kind of globally, that you, there's been a focus on environmental uh, sustainability. And I think we really need to have that focus there. But it has to be complemented by this issue of economic and social as well. Because one of the big things that make me sad this, is that when, when I look at sort of the discussion in society, people tend not to understand how far ahead the Swedish farmers are. I mean, if you can look at, for example, take take the most sort of, uh, in a sense, uh, criticised product, beef. Swedish farming uh, is some seventy percent more efficient than the global average. There's a they called World Resources Institute. They made a huge sort of document looking at what could a sustainable food system look like in 2050, and they come up with if we want to sort of have either meat beef consumption has to be reduced by 75% or we need to be 75% more efficient in producing beef in 2050. And what I said before, in Sweden, we are about 70% more efficient than the global average. Today, we have 5% left to be where the rest of the world need to be in 2050. And still, there's a lot of criticism and there's a lot of discussion saying that you should. Change your diets, and of course, some people absolutely should change their diets. But on average, we also need to recognize that if we had to stop eating meat, we should not start by stopping eating the meat that has been produced in Sweden in a very environmental, sustainable way. We should stop uh, eating the meat that has been produced in less environmentally friendly ways, and this is probably the 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 beef that would go last. And that's something that we also need to understand. So we have to work on that. And also there, when you come into it, because I've been talking to farmers when I was <laughs> allowed to travel. Uh, and the, because we have this regional meetings, and one of the things that struck me the most being there was these sort of dairy farmers standing up and saying, I, I can't take it anymore. Because they, what they were talking about is that their kids were being bullied at schools. They were being pestered by... Uh, Uh, animal rights activists and things like that, so that they did not want to continue. And for the animal rights activists, this might seem like a victory. But I guess for the world, it's not, because that production will be sort of compensated for somewhere else. And we'll probably go into more difficult parts where animals are being treated far less good than they are in Sweden, and with much higher environmental impacts. But also the thing is that we have farmers who... They, of course, know when they make the decision they want they want to go into farming. Unfortunately, they know that the economy will not be as good. Because on average in Sweden, they, if you look at the entire food chain, the primary production, they earn some 4-4.5% four, four on their return on their investment. If you go to the food industry, it's like 10-15% return on investment. If you go to the... Uh, grocery stores, is 25%. And if you go to the restaurants, it's 40%. So, I mean, even if you just want to work with food, it's not farming where you should invest your money in, or you should start working if you want to make money. And then, of course, you should work in other parts of, of uh, computing or elsewhere, you can also make... So the farmers who make this decision, they are probably and unfortunately aware that this, I won't get extremely rich from what I'm doing. But they do it because they think it's the right thing to do. And then when rest of the, the rest of society say that you are not doing the right thing, that they bring criticized, that the kids are being it that is really adding insult to injury and i think that's the saddest part because these are people that we desperately need because i've heard people saying that well farming is so bad because it hurts biodiversity and looking at this it's farming that carries a big part of this the interesting part in sweden is that the way farming in a sense if you can call it that hurts biodiversity is by not existing anymore because it's the things that we do not do any longer that hurts biodiversity. It's not having the grazing, the meadows, the things, because we're losing farmers. In Sweden, right now, and for the past, I don't know how many years, actually, I don't remember the calculation, but for the past, let's say, a decade, we have been losing one farmer every eight hours. That's three farmers a day who are not active anymore, who don't continue taking care of the land, managing our soils, managing the, the, the biodiversity around them. And then, of course, leads to sort of things becoming, well, less diverse. And that leads to less diverse uh, biomes and ecosystems as well. So I would say this economic part and the social parts are so important. I think there is also one of the reasons why I'm hopeful, because I see a shift in society. I I see that people are starting to understand the the huge and beneficial things that these farmers do and that they actually are the basis on on which we can build a sustainable society on. And I think this is something that, that that actually gives me a lot of hope that we have sort of passed this hurdle, that it's not any longer more so that people think that, well, if we don't have Swedish farmer, what's the big deal? We can get our food from elsewhere. People are starting to understand that that's not the case, and that we really, really need to take care of our farmers and that we need more people to engage with farming, because I think that if we should be able to build a sustainable society for the future, we need more people willing to engage. And then I guess we need to change the, the social the aspects around farming and also the economic expertise. So we guess the best and brightest to engage with this hugely important field.
0: No, and, and what comes to me, and this is something that we often come back to when we have this discussion, is the trade-off of things that we, we can't, as you say, we can't just stop. We just, we need to figure out how to do it better without impacting negatively i think and i often find myself uh coming back to this type of question in in this podcast but i think it's important to to raise uh any things that we will be talking about here today so far and is there something that we as consumers can think about and uh, then i'm mainly thinking about our food consumption habits like when we buy stuff in the grocery store or should we buy on local farms or in your opinion is there something that we as consumers can think about
1: Oh, yeah, absolutely. First of all, I must say that one of the things that, I mean, you you, you definitely need to think about this. And there's a lot of things that you as a consumer can do. And I, I do understand people that are saying that, well, things are too complicated. I can't think about all the different aspects of sustainability when I'm standing there in a store. I just want to buy food for my kids and get home and get done with it. Uh, and I fully understand that. I, I would hope that more people could engage in this and not just engage in it when they are sort of buying well people don't do that anymore but when they're buying food to sort of have a dinner for their friends and they want to brag about what they have done and how good they are as people and that's of course i I, that's perfectly fine that you do that i do it myself Uh, but then they tend to do it by the right stuff and the the, the fine labels and all those things but i think that we need to do this also on a daily basis for ourselves that we buy things that make us feel good and 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 sort of buy the food that 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 makes you your stomach feel good even after even before you've eaten it i think that's Important, and then how to make that, and and I think that's huge, tricky, and the good thing with being in Sweden and being buying your food, if you are, it might be people from elsewhere listening to this as well, is that you can safely, I would say, buy Swedish food, knowing that at least it's not bad. Of course, if you want to dive into this and find out the different parts, and you can buy different types of Swedish food, and there might also be maybe imports that could be as good, or in some cases, even better. And there are things we don't really get here in Sweden. You can't buy Swedish coffee, so you have to get that imported. But one of the things, if you need one rule of thumb, is that if you are buying Swedish, you're at least not buying bad. So you can do that with a safe conscience. And I think that's an important sort of, just to to make life slightly simpler. If you're standing there and hesitating should i do this or that i mean try to avoid looking at the price label i know it's, it's hard to do that but i mean if you look at, at, at sort of where it's from at least that gives you a better guide than, than the price label on what you should buy i think
2: thank you for that um i'm quite sad to say that we're rounding up a bit on time here uh, there's so much here in such an interesting topic that i would like to discuss for hours and hours and uh, perhaps we will come back some day to talk more about it but i'm um, uh, to kind of round up here, is there anything that you're excited about right now, like coming forward, uh, perhaps during this year that you're part of?
1: Well, I, I, I'm, I'm very, very hopeful. And I, I, as I've been saying, I think that things are moving in the right direction. They're moving too slowly, but starts are always slow. But I think that we are moving in the right direction. There's so many different things that are happening at the same time that I think that we need to uh, sort of look at and that we need to be happy for. And I think that... The, the worst thing that we can do is to lose faith because if we think that things will really go bad, that easily becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. So we need to maintain this optimism. We need to think about the world in optimistic views and think that it can happen because if we can dream it, we can actually make it happen. I think that's hugely important for us moving forward. And I think we need to remind ourselves. I mean, we as a species seem to have this strange thing in in, in how we (laughs) have been constructed that if, if you have... If you get one critique and then five praise, you think to think that they're equally strong or equally big, and they're not. That's one to five, but we have this thing in our head that sort of, we, we tend to, be more negative in that sense. Now we have to work with it and help each other and build up each other and tell each other when we're doing good things and reminding ourselves that there are good news as well. Just to take one thing, I'm I'm using this mobile phone now because my internet connection is so bad. I have a shell on this that is made of the rest that have uh, come when you press linseed oil. And the good thing with that, if you think about it, this is that this is a plastic that protects my phone, so it doesn't sort of get broken when I drop it, and I do that far too often. Uh, but it's also made of no fossil fuels that has gone into that at all. And the linseed, uh, it has become oil that can be painted on houses, so to make them be a carbon store and make us have a sort of benefit from it for a longer time. It's also so that the, the, the seeds, you can sprinkle on your 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 breakfast and you get a are feeling in your stomach. And also that the the straws from the linseed can be made into linen towels or shirts or whatever. I mean, there's so much that we could use what nature produces and so much that we could think about to take advantage of That, that the possibilities that exists in the green sectors are enormous. We just need to be smart enough to see them and make the best use we can of them. And in that way, we can rid ourselves of this uh, fossil dependence that we're having and, and sort of move on to this better world and of course it won't be perfect because perfect doesn't exist but we can work in the right direction and I get hope that more people will be willing to engage with the green sector because I'm so 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 definitely certain that that's where the future lies and that's where I hope that more people will turn their eyes to rather than on the negative things that are out there And sort of, but this is where we can make things happen this is where we can actually make a change and I hope it would happen within a decade's time Time, and at least before <laughs> I move on to a Pasture somewhere else.
2: Mm, magnificent. You kind of touched on the points that we've been trying to achieve with this podcast to spread the actionability and spread the positivity to, to make people act up and to uh, make the mindset shift uh, in people so that the society can shift in turn. I love how you describe that. It's really powerful. And you you kind of touched on it already, but we always ask this question at the end of the podcast. So I will... Ask it for the sake of that as well, To What's your encouragement for listeners throughout this decade? Go green. Beautiful.
1: Mm. <laughs> no, but actually, I mean, it, it, look at photosynthesis. It has been sort of the basis for our existence of this planet. In the past, we have a slight sort of cul-de-sac of fossil use, which is basically also photosynthesis, but the photosynthesis that took place some 360 million years ago. But photosynthesis is the way that we can exist as anybody on this planet. And if you start there, you cannot go wrong. You will end up in the green sectors and we will welcome you with open arms because we need the best and brightest. So welcome.
2: Lovely, lovely. And uh, where can people go to find more about LRF and uh, about you?
1: At LRF.se is the perfect place to start. And, and and I'll be happy to try to respond to my questions you might have. So so please get in touch and and we'll discuss this further.
0: Amazing!
2: Thank you so much for talking to us today. It was a real pleasure, and um, I hope to speak to you again soon.
1: Absolutely!
0: Thanks a lot, Jens. Take care.
1: Thank you. Bye bye.